Welcome to the Amateur Skeptics Podcast. This is our special interview with Garth Sumden. Sumden. I can't. I, I still can't say Sundum. it. Sundum. There you yeah, go. Yeah, just like Gundam. Gundam, right. Gundam, Sundum. Sundum. Okay. Yeah, so uh, we're um, this uh, um, this is our interview um, that we did uh, with Garth. Um, anything we need to say before we get into the interview? Well, it turned out to be a lot shorter than we wanted. It, he was a great guest. Yeah, it did, uh, unfortunately. But uh, we'll, technical issues. Yeah. So, all right. Well, let's go ahead and, uh, and go. Just, on. I'll, I'll just mention. I don't know if I, if I got it in with the actual interview or not, but I got to see Garth at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. He put on a presentation called what was it called? Um, the Science of the Perfect Life. And uh, and so he did just a really great. Uh, it was for his book that we'll discuss in here. And uh, yeah, he's just a great presenter. He does a really great job of providing scientific information to people without dumbing it down. Uh, what I find so many times that annoys me personally is that I usually seem to have to get my science in sixth grade bites. You know, it's it's written for sixth grade, you know, six year olds or sixth graders to get them interested in science. But, you know, I'm a I'm an old woman interested in science. I, I, I but I'm not a scientist. So I want it. But you are smarter than a fifth grader. Possibly. But I want it. So I want it, you know, accessible, but I don't want it to feel dumbed down. And I thought he did a really fabulous job of walking and a very difficult line, walking that line between making it super accessible to anybody without. And I think it would be accessible to kids, too. In fact, there were plenty in the audience without it feeling dumbed down to someone like me. And um, Brian, you read it. Did you kind of get the same kind of feel? Yeah. And. Um, I think I'll talk more after the interview about about okay. more specifics, but yeah, I, I I liked his approach. Okay. All right, so let's get on to the interview. This is the Amateur Skeptics here today, and we are here with Garth Sumden, and uh, he is the writer of a new book, Brain Trust. He's also the writer of Brain Candy, Geek Logic, and The Geek's Guide to World Domination. Oh, uh, Brian, hold on one second. Okay. Garth Sundum. Sundum. I'm sorry. That's yeah, me. He, My he fault. The, the way you said it, it sounded like you said Garth something. I'm Although sorry. I like Garth, that, that'll be my new pronoun. <laughs> it is a it is a good thing, you know. And it, Garth is perfect for this podcast because he is a just a big geek. In the, it, would that be a good description? That that is uh, that is 100 percent accurate. Accurate, yes. <laughs> so, well, I mean, tell us a little bit about uh, about the book. It's Brain Trust. Ninety three top scientists reveal lab tested secrets to surfing, dating, dieting, gambling. Uh, what growing man-eating plants and more? <laughs> yes, I I figured you know if you're gonna if if you're wondering how to grow man-eating plants, why not call a Nobel winner and find out? So basically, what I did is I talked to extremely overpowered people about things that come from their labs that we can do in our own lives. So you know how to play the lottery better and how to fold the ultimate paper airplane and how to make you know flying cyborg beetles and you know how to uh, stop decision fatigue and all sorts of things. So it was a it was a fun call around project. And if I'd had any idea what a pain in the neck it was going to be, I, I don't know that I ever would have written the proposal. <laughs> <laughs> so how many how many scientists did you talk to? I talked to over 130 scientists. Oh man! Wow. And, and every one of these gentlemen had a PhD except for one. Yeah, exactly. The guy, oh, what the heck was his name? He's a Google employee who I talked to about scrap. Jason Katz Brown, that's yeah. it. Exactly. Everybody but one had a PhD. So 129 <laughs> PhDs and one, one guy who just happens to have written the, 
the world-class uh, Scrabble site Quackle, so I thought it qualified him. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what, what, what is that like? I mean, how do you prepare to talk to 130 PhD scientists? You know, it's funny. So when I started the project, um, you know, I'd done a lot of interviewing in the past and I had sort of a way I go about it. I mean, you read some papers, you come up with some questions, you contact the person, you set something up, you shoot through their secretary and, you know, you miss each other three times and you finally get the person on the phone and you ask your questions. But what I ended up doing is intentionally underpreparing and it worked out so much better. Um, I would always go in with a question that I knew I wanted to ask, but invariably we would spin off into terrain that I never would have asked the person about. And, and that's what I would end up writing about. Like mathematician Ken Stewart, you should totally Google, he's awesome, um, telling me about how he's using the principles of rotational mechanics to get his malfunctioning cat to land on its feet. So he's <laughs> like dropping his cat in progressively higher heights onto a cushion, you know, like back down and like trying to get its cat, his cat to flip itself, which is just totally awesome. <laughs> Isn't the standard method for fixing that just uh, tape buttered toast, butter side down to all four of the cat's feet? Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I, I think around here, if you tape anything delicious to anything furry, it gets eaten by something else furry. We have two labs here. And <laughs> guinea pig. So I, you know, I was thinking about buttering the guinea pig and seeing what happens, but I think I'll wait till my daughter goes to sleep. <laughs> add bacon. Make yeah, sure you, you add bacon. Yeah, you add bacon. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I, so how many of these things have you actually tried? I mean, I know that you went as far as to eat a bar of soap. Yeah. You know, a lot of these things I have tried. Obviously, I've done some of the practical stuff like building a paper airplane, which the thing is awesome, totally flies. But, you know, on the other side, there's – okay, so I talked to Skip Garibaldi, who is a mathematician at Emory. And I don't know if you guys remember um, the mathematician or the physicist, I guess, Garrett Lisi, who a couple of years ago came up with that theory of everything inside of this crazy math called E8. Well, anyway, Skip's the guy who disproved him. And so, you know, I call up Skip thinking we're going to have this, you know, big conversation about theories of everything. We ended up talking about the lottery. Um, and what Skip says is that by playing unpopular numbers, you don't decrease your chance of winning. Like if it's random, you can pick any numbers, whatever, and it's not going to you know, affect your chances of winning or losing. But if you pick unpopular numbers, you can increase your chance of winning alone. And so you don't have to split the pot as often and you make the expected value of your dollar higher. Mm -hmm. Interesting. If you combine unpopular numbers with lotteries that have a pot in excess of what their ticket sales should predict. So like the pot's a little overbalanced compared to ticket sales. You can actually get a positive expected rate of return on your lottery dollar. So you, you never want to play the big ones like Powerball and whatever they're called, Mega Millions or right. whatever, because the ticket sales are always rabid and your chance of splitting the pot becomes so great that it makes that pot look small. Instead, if you look for a state lottery that has rolled over a couple times without a winner and, you know, the pot remains below like, oh, I can't remember if it was 40 million was his cutoff, I think. And it had to have rolled over, I think, like four times before that. Then it's a good bet that that lottery is actually a good bet. <laughs> hmm. I did read a little bit of the post you put on your website about that. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's always fun to write about things that 
that are counterintuitive. Like before I called Skip, I never ever would have imagined that there was any way the lottery could be anything but complete idiocy. Um, and it's neat to stumble onto these things, you know. So so many of the things in in the book, like I stumbled onto, and I mean, it's a new way of writing for me. I I kind of, I mean, I'm a planner, and I'm I'm sort of a I don't know a scheduler, and and but you know, by by letting a lot of that stuff go and sort of going where the scientists led, it, it was it was a lot better than I. They drove the boat a lot better than I ever would have. So was it? I mean, was it just a matter of once you got them hooked talking that they would just kind of keep going, and you could find a, a, an interesting nugget in that? A lot of times, yeah. Like, like I remember, I called up the um, I called up the mathematician William Cook, who is halftime. I believe it was halftime at Georgia State and halftime at Princeton. Boy, I could be wrong about that, but anyway, he works on this problem called the the traveling salesman problem, which is. Like if you have a bunch of points on a grid, how can you touch each point with the shortest path possible? So it's like you're on a, a tennis court and you've got a bunch of balls and you have to walk around and pick them up. Or, you know, so so I wanted to talk to him. Oh, I'm sorry. This is one of the great unsolved problems of mathematics. This is a Clay Institute million dollar prize problem if you solve it. So he looks at sufficing strategies for this traveling salesman problem. And we ended up talking about how to schedule the day's errands most efficiently. So you could like, <laughs> you know, drop, drop off a kid, go pick up the dry cleaning, you know, go get whatever. And, and it's all these points on a grid. So it turns out that if you always go to the closest errand and then, you know, look around and go to the next, you know, the closest one from you there, you'll be within 25% of the optimal tour. And if you then look at the path that you took and uncross it, and that doesn't make any sense until you drive, I'm sorry, but if you uncross your path, then you'll be within 10% of the optimal tour. So it's like, you know, this crazy abstract mathematical thing that hasn't even been solved. And then it's like, oh, dude, I'm going to do my errands better tomorrow. That's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I usually end up going, when I've got a bunch of errands, I usually end up taking and making a big circle. Yeah, 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 totally. And I bet, I bet anything that that circle is, is very frequently going to the next closest place every time. And if you're making a circle, obviously, obviously it's not the problem. So, you know, if, if, I don't know, a circle, I, I bet a lot of those paths conform to a circle, but that's just kind of conjecture. <laughs> hmm. But with the, with the new, uh, GPS technologies and stuff that we have, it would, it's really easy to actually to map out your path. Don't, yeah. uh, Brian, yeah. don't remind me about your GPS. <laughs> I still remember the day that it kept telling you, you need to turn around and go back to this path. Oh, wasn't that awesome? And we're five minutes from my house. Wasn't that funny? <laughs> we, just, we kept it rolling to see exactly how far, how, how crazy this thing was going to go. It keeps telling us, turn around and go back to... That's awesome. It, I, it only worked, though, because we knew the better path and it was incapable of rerouting, and so so we got a quite of a kick out of it. It's funny. Yeah, I, I used to uh, I used to drive for a supermarket, uh, Palestinian owned supermarket meat market, and I learned really really well how to route myself around Denver and where everything was located because he'd be, why did you take so long? <laughs> hurry hurry. In in all fairness, the the GPS has gotten much better. It reroutes now. Mm -hmm. So the now the other um you interviewed a guy who um 
and, and I'm catching myself to it, you know, you, that was talking about, uh, you know, when you're listening to somebody, the, the responses that you'll give to show that you're listening, you know, kind of the, the awkward laughing and stuff like that. Yep. I did. So, so Robert Provine is a neuroscientist, and I believe he was in Maryland. But what's funny, he also played Barry Sachs in the Delbert McClinton Band, which is <laughs> funny. So, so he has made a career studying laughter, but not necessarily – for laughter's sake, he uses it as, as what he calls a, a natural cue for, for humans. There's some things that we don't control very well, uh, crying and laughter being two of them. And we can, we can smile and frown and, you know, say all sorts of words and all of those things are controlled and can be lies. But laughter and crying are often very honest even when they're i mean even when you're not laughing because it's humor you're laughing for a purpose so that's what he looked at he he went to food courts and malls he went to high school cafeterias um and he looked at why people laugh and he found that uh well, i found a lot of this but one thing he found is that the speaker laughs a lot more often than the than the person listening uh, most laughter does not come following anything that's remotely funny. Instead, we use it as punctuation. It, it, it's like, oh man, I can't even, I, now I'm thinking about it. It's like the pink <laughs> elephant. I can't do it. There we go. Yeah. I kind of wonder if the speaker laughing more than the listeners is not the speaker trying to cue the listeners into laughing. Yeah. That's an interesting idea. That, that, that could very well be. Um, yeah, that, that, that could very well be too. Or, you know, one of the things that he looked at too is you laugh out of empathy. What he said is you don't laugh at Leno because Leno's saying funny things. You laugh at Leno because you empathize with Leno or Conan O'Brien or whoever, you know, you're watching, whatever. But it's a way of demonstrating in-group status. So, you know, when you're in a pod of people and people are chuckling, you don't have a group of people anymore. You've got a tribe. <laughs> hmm. That is intriguing. You did a lot of uh, uh, different articles about that kind of so social cohesiveness and tribes and groups and all of those dynamics. Is that kind of one of your personal interests? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think what really grabbed me, so I, I called around sort of not knowing really what was going on in science right now. I, I just, I tried to go where the science led me. And so at the end of this thing, I kind of sat back and I thought, you know, oh my gosh, I've, I've got, you know, these 93 topics or, you know, 130 scientists. And there were fields that were jumping out of there as sort of the fields that are happening now. Um, one of them is networked well, networks in general, networked people is what I was going to say. But, you know, networks in general, simply because we have tools that we never had before, we can look at data in ways we never could before. We can look at these structures in ways we never could before. Oh, so for example, <laughs> check this out. So I called these guys at the London School of Economics, Hugo Touchet and, oh, is it Javier Pena? Oh, I hope I'm getting that right. <laughs> anyway, so... So these guys do something called graph theory, which is this computer network um, evaluation theory where you look at how all these computers are connected in a network and what happens when you take one out. Does information still flow through the network? 
and how can you arrange nodes in this network so that information flows more efficiently? So what they did is they modeled uh, World Cup soccer team as networks, and each player was a node, and the ball was the information passing through this system. And so they were able to calculate each player's centrality to that system. So they looked at uh, they looked at the Dutch team in 2010, and they. Um, Oh, did this just go to sleep? Oh, no, it's just my display. Whew, scared me. They found that the Dutch team had this crazy high centrality on Aaron Robin, the A-R-J-E-N, R-O-B-B-E-N, the, is he, oh, he wasn't there. Is he their striker? I forget. But anyway, and, and the Spanish team that they were playing against had extremely balanced centrality. So Spain marks Aaron Robin. Information no longer flows through the Dutch system, and Spain wins the world, which is probably a little bit of a small sample size to make it a, a generalization, but it sure worked well. <laughs> yeah, and, and interesting how people were taking, you know, science, like you say, used for a completely different purpose, and yeah. and repurposed it into, and and I found this is a common theme throughout your book, the stuff that they like. The things that kind of grabbed them in their life that, you know, didn't necessarily have anything to do with their work day, but they love. They, they, yeah. these guys obviously love soccer. And so they applied it and, and just the amazing things that came out of it were, was awesome. And these two, uh, these other two guys use this same graph theory. They're financial wonks on Wall Street. And there's this thing called the New York subway record where you, where you touch each subway station in the shortest amount of time. So they used this same graph theory with themselves as the information and they passed themselves most efficiently through this system. And these two Wall Street wonks were able to beat this venerable subway record by by opening up a can of network mathematic whoop-ass on it, which <laughs> is also pretty cool. Yeah. Oh. So you, you spoke to all these scientists and what a whirlwind of uh... – of information in this book. I mean, because the, the top, you, you go from one topic to the next very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that is, boy, it's so funny. I think that there is a, I think there's a traditional way to do journalism, science journalism specifically, where, where people sort of have their things. Um, I, I mean, you pick up a Malcolm Gladwell book and you, you know, it's a Malcolm Gladwell book or, or Jonah Lair or, you know, there's a lot of people that I like, um, to read. Um, and I imagine them sitting at their desks, you know, somewhere in, in New York, calling out to these people. And then I look at the way I ended up doing interviews, which was almost universally in my Subaru parked in the garage <laughs> because it's like the quietest place in, in my house. Um, I've now retreated to the back room. Silence out there for now. But so I, I think that my messy life and the fact that I didn't necessarily try to hide it from these scientists, you, you know, the fact that I'm there with my French press in the morning and my Subaru in the garage, you know, with my laptop on my lap, I, I think helps get to a place with people who are used to the ivory tower that, that you can't necessarily get if you're sitting at a desk in, in New York. It creates um, an informality. Creates an informality. Okay, so I'm talking to this guy, Stephen Greenspan, um, a psychologist at Connecticut, about gullibility. And we get into the conversation. He's like, okay, look, let me tell you a story. I'm like, okay, good. I'm ready to type at that point because that's when things get good, you know? Um, so he's like, I was on the phone with my mom and my mom says, you know, your aunt Ruth just, you know, is selling her engagement ring. Do you want to buy it? And Greenspan says to his mom, no, you know, my girlfriend and I, we're not really ready yet. 
we, you know, it's, we're not ready for an engagement ring. And his mom presses, she says, uh, you know, it's really cheap. This is a great deal on this engagement ring. It's sort of a family piece of jewelry. You know, it's a great deal if you want it. And Greenspan says, no, mom, no, we're not ready yet. His mom says, look, I already bought it for you. <laughs> and he says, oh, okay, mom. And all of a sudden she's congratulating him on getting, on getting married. So he said that she had duped him into marriage. And because of that, he got interested in the science of gullibility. What had pushed him over that precipice into getting duped into marriage? And so he found these these four factors that push people towards the precipice of gullibility. And he, you know, I'm going to talk about these in a very general way, but he, he quantifies these and can show people getting pushed closer and closer. But, you know, the first thing is um, a believable situation, which, I mean, that totally makes sense. you got to have a good scam. You can't just be like the Nigerian spam scam thing where it's like, you know, I'm the widow of Maria Machiba, whatever. Okay, so you need a good situation. You need affect. You can ratchet up the person. If the dupe has cognition, they can fight it off. And cognition can either be this, like, fluid intelligence, you know, the ability to think on their feet quickly, or it can be just straight-up information. So the dupe can counter with cognition. Um, and then the final factor is personality. So on the phone with his mom, she had a believable scam. She had Aunt Ruth's ring. She ratcheted up the affect, like, you know, buy it now. It's going to go quick. You got to do it now. You can't get off the phone. I need a decision right now. She had personality. He was unusually uh, predisposed to <laughs> trust his mother. Yeah. And and so she, she pushed him. She pushed him right off the cliff. Took all the <laughs> there seems to be an element of peer pressure in there, too. She, she threw in there. It's a family ring, which That's means you don't want to let it go out of the family. That's an interesting, that's an interesting point. And I wonder, I wonder if that would get subsumed by, by affect or if she was trying to somehow play to his personality. I mean, there might be. I would, I would say, I'd say it goes under personality, but you know, it, she had a lot of information about him in the first place, clearly, because <laughs> she's, you know, she's his mom. Yeah. And yeah. she knew what buttons to push. Yeah. But that's true of any good salesman. Yeah. yeah totally. You, oh, here's something. Do you guys know about empathy and car salesmen? No. Oh, this is cool. This is, I just, so I'm, I'm continuing this theme and calling around for, for another book kind of about, about intelligence broadly defined. So I'm looking at things like expertise and wisdom and problem solving and intelligence and willpower and all these things. And so I talked to this guy who after his undergrad and before his grad school, he had this job as sort of a writer researcher. He was, calling around to all and, and driving around to all of these car dealerships in Michigan. And he found, and again, it's so funny, it's like experience. You, you got to get your hands in this data. But what he found is that he would go to these car dealerships and frequently their most overperforming salesperson would be there bragging about selling some junker to a poor person for $500 over invoice. So, so he thought, you know, like any sane person would think, this is awful. And what's going on here? So we decided to look into it. We found that there is a Goldilocks zone of empathy that a salesperson can have to, to predict their best sales results. Like you want some empathy because you need to be able to connect with your customer, but you can't have too much empathy because it keeps you from exploiting them. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds almost borderline psychopathic. Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah, so we, we recently, uh, my mom was uh, having one of her bathrooms done, and the salesman was so slick 
and you know and, and he gives his first price which you know is high and he's and he's like I'm the owner of the company and I can do something that other salesmen can't and it's just everything that came out of his mouth just sickened me I finally I finally left and of course she made the deal but it's like I I felt like he with him sitting right there I couldn't you know be like you're a slime ball <laughs> well but and that's what's funny like so you would have burned social capital to gain financial capital and another thing that totally blew up out of out of out of this book for me was how how people are learning to more accurately describe you know the utility of any situation in terms other than monetary terms like so i talked to this um nobel winner eric maskin who's an economist at princeton and he does something called mechanism design and his okay so his deal is this is a little complex, but he works with carbon treaties and he tries to build treaties based on the fact that what is easy for the United States to give may be dear to a country who could get it. Like, you know, we can give tech assistance. We've got tech assistance out our Silicon Alley. Um, but that same tech assistance is, is precious to Brazil. So how can he put on a menu all of these things, you know, political capital and tech assistance and carbon cuts and, you know, food aid and military aid and whatever else is on this menu so that countries can get what they want, so that countries can get what is valuable to them by giving up what's not valuable to them and making it a positive sum game everyone. And of course, we ended up talking about how to split the check with a group of friends. And it's like, you know, for, for your cash strapped, you, you know, unemployed buddy, putting an extra five bucks on there is, is very dear. But, you know, maybe you want the increased sex appeal of having slapped down an extra five bucks. And it, it's interesting how money is not the only way to measure everything. And in fact, there are measurements that we're not even aware of that are going on in the backs of our brains every second of every day. It's cool. Yeah, I'm doing a lot of stuff. I'm starting a new business and I'm doing mediation and negotiation with people. And exactly what you're talking about happens all the time. You think you've got a pretty basic uh, you know, math problem here of who owes what to who. But when you focus in on what is important to people and what they value, the equation goes all over the place. You know, all of a sudden people are making deals you would never think they'd agree to, but you've hit on something that's important to them. Or, or uh, like you're also saying, something that, ah, I don't really care about that part. So it's easy for them to give that up and to get something else. But it complicates negotiations ex to an extreme amount. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's, <laughs> that's why he has a Nobel doing this. And, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, I think when you start blowing up the variables and looking thing, at things that aren't just money, you end up, you end up getting extremely complicated. But I also think you get closer to what our brain does naturally. Yeah, because it, it does. It takes it takes all of those variables that are out there. You know, and again, it was another theme in, in the book was, you know, all of these different ways that we we get input from our senses and from our from our the way we're taught in society. There's all these different cues and clues and, and everything that goes into a million decisions a second in our brains that we're not always aware of. But I think 
what you were what you what a number of different people came up with was if you focus on those things you're going to have more information than the other guy you're going to be able to make better decisions and come out come out with better ways of doing things by by focusing on some of that what otherwise would just be background noise or unexplored information so unfortunately, the interview got cut short because of technical difficulties. We tried to get back on with Garth. There was a whole technical calamities, and he ended up having to initiate the bedtime routine. He was there with uh, it was it was just him. His wife was out, and uh, you got to take care of the kids. Yep. And then of course we threw together our last minute web uh, podcast, which um, winging it. One where we ended up talking about the. Um, Houses that would work good for a zombie apocalypse. Right, we talked about apocalypse stuff, and so that do it that together really well. as quickly as we could. Well, I mean, it was—I I don't know—I thought that that went quite well. Oh yeah, it, it went yeah. well, but you it know, was we can last talk moment. about shit. Yeah. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, that but I—I I think that one of the points that I wanted to get to um, that he did with this book that I don't know that we thoroughly addressed was he interviews these 90, 93 scientists that he put into the book, and at the end of every one of these is a helpful tip. So he took what they talked about and he, and and that's why a lot of a lot of what he the interviews that he did do didn't get into the book because he couldn't make a helpful tip at the end of it. And I, I really thought that it was great that in all the cases or almost all the cases where he went to interview somebody what he wanted to talk about when he went there was not what they ended up talking about. They ended up talking about some completely random random uh random subject and that turned out to be better than what he wanted to talk about yeah so, all, <laughs> we see that in our own podcast sometimes yep yeah absolutely i've been going through his website and i, I think the favorite post of mine that I, i've found here so far is the rational irrationality of egyptian soccer deaths and it was it was absolutely fascinating because he's talking about perceived identity and how perceived identity can be strong enough to make you do things that you wouldn't ordinarily do. Mm. He definitely gets into that in the book as well, and in other in other matters. Um, in especially, well, he essentially addresses that when he's talking about gullibility. When he was talking to um, the scientists about gullibility, where he gets you know conned into getting married by his mother. Right. So. I remember that. That was yeah. good. Yeah. So the book is a, a, a heck of a lot of fun. I I highly recommend it. Um, it's it's a and it's an entertaining, fun read. And like Kimberly, Kimberly said, his approach is good, and he and he doesn't dumb it down. He kind of just gives it the way that it was given to him. So yeah. Anything else, guys? Yeah, just big thanks uh, out to Garth for coming on and speaking to us. His enthusiasm for what he does is really tangible and yeah. uh, appreciated. Yeah, so it was great. Uh, we had a good time in the interview. Um, we would have liked to have gone a little longer, but uh, certainly things happen. Um, but I think what we've got is uh, is pretty good and at least give you a taste of what the book is about. I hope we can have him on again another time. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. All right, thanks, Garth, and uh, we'll talk to you guys next time. All right, good night. Good night. Good night. Thank you for listening to the Amateur Skeptics Podcast. For more information about the Amateur Skeptics, go to AmateurSkeptics.com. To send us feedback, suggestions, or big flaming insults, feel free to contact us at WTF at AmateurSkeptics.com. Other contact information can be found on our website. 
You can leave a voicemail for the Amateur Skeptics Podcast at 720-295-7785. Music for this podcast was provided by OFM. To find out more about OFM, go to myspace.com forward slash OFMHQ. This podcast is released under Creative Commons, no derivatives, 3.5 license. Thank you for listening to the Amateur Skeptics Podcast. Amateur Skeptics website, Facebook, and podcast album art is provided by and copyright Shadow Knight Digital Portraiture. Larger prints or custom pieces are available upon request. 